as I said a few moments ago, we will tonight be doing what lots of people have been doing over the last few days. We'll talk about Katrina on its first anniversary, but I think we'll do it in a way that is different from the way most people handle it. Uh, what will be different, I'll explain in a moment after I tell you who our guests are. Charles Dowding is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Northwestern University, and he was with us the night after uh, the levees broke down in New Orleans, and we talked about the infrastructure of New Orleans then, and we'll do that again tonight. Angela Rosas joins us. She's a staff writer for the Chicago Tribune, and she's a native of uh, that area down in Louisiana. In fact, she's a, a real, authentic uh, Louisiana Cajun. She's recently returned from assignment in New Orleans. Uh, John McQuaid will be with us by phone during the first hour. He is a special projects reporter for the New Orleans Times-Picayune, a Pulitzer Prize winner, in fact, and the co-author of a new book titled Path of Destruction, The Devastation of New Orleans and the Coming Age of Superstorms. During the second hour, we'll be joined by one of the leading uh, American black intellectuals. One has to say black because it's relevant to what he'll be talking about. That's John McWhorter, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, who does indeed uh, specialize in race, ethnicity, and culture issues. I believe we have on the phone with us John McQuaid. Are you there, sir? Yes, I am. I'm very, very pleased that you could join us. Let me give a brief opening statement and then get you all going on this. It is my impression that the main line press, uh, with some exceptions, and by press I mean both print and electronic, has taken this general view. Uh, the disaster was basically was based upon poor preparation and poor attention from the Bush administration and the way things worked out, particularly with the isolation uh, at the Superdome, was a reflection of what is sort of endemic in America generally and particularly characterizes this and other conservative administrations, namely a kind of uh, uh, a um, apathy towards institutional racism, a uh, view of blacks as second-class citizens who we don't have to worry about as much as we do about others. Now, uh, we'll treat, treat all of that in time, but to begin with, Charles Dowding, uh, as an engineer, can you explain, if only very quickly, uh, to what degree was this administration or to what degree were earlier administrations and earlier nameable bodies of authority responsible for the disaster that overtook New Orleans? Well, I, I think we need to sort of unpack that word disaster and sort of separate it into two issues, and that being natural hazards, which uh, Mother Nature produces for us, and then disasters which are the result of uh, inadequate or poor planning or uh, bad luck uh, that, that occurs. And if we take that, that viewpoint then and, and look at what you're saying, we also then need to uh, subdivide the word disaster into what sort of preparedness state there was and what sort of relief state there was. Let me instantly turn to John McQuaid, even interrupting your exposition for the moment. Because Sorry, it was so long. <laughs> it's not long at all. John, uh, uh, how many years before the disaster of last uh, year did you and your colleague do a newspaper series in the uh, Times-Picayune in which you warned that the levy system was not trustworthy and that something terrible is likely to happen? Uh, we wrote that series, which was called Washing Away, in uh, 2002, and it uh, looked at uh, a lot of the flaws in the levy system, as you note, uh, mainly that overall it, it was not really designed to protect against a major hurricane, um, and even uh, to that low standard, there are a lot of problems. There are some areas where they had to 
put in sandbags every time a hurricane approached just because uh, they hadn't built up the levees or they dipped down under a bridge or something. And, you know, a single weak point can uh, uh, wreck your whole system. And how did you account for that degree of negligence? Um, it uh, couldn't really be traced to a single presidential administration. It was more of a pattern uh, extending over uh, the 40-year history of the system. Um, a lot of the blame can be put on, on the Corps of Engineers, which is a very hidebound uh, organization, and uh, came up with these levy uh, designs after the last big uh, disaster to hit New Orleans, Hurricane Betsy in 1960. And then uh, pretty much after that, there's just uh, inertia. They, they didn't update their designs. Um, Congress... Uh, uh, viewed this sort of as an opportunity for pork, but didn't really oversee mm -hmm. the levy system very well either. This, this does coincide with what Charles Dowding was saying, I think, even a year ago. On the night a year ago when we discussed this, didn't you also point out that the Corps of Engineers chose to deflect or alter the course of the Mississippi in a way that uh, further endangered New Orleans? Well, of course, the Corps of Engineers was given the, the job of... of, of protecting New Orleans from both flood and, and hurricanes after the uh, uh, historic floods of 1927 when the federal government then put the Corps of Engineers in charge of trying to, mm -hmm. um, I guess you might say, guide the individual levy boards that uh, are actually in charge of uh, construction and maintenance of the levees around New Orleans. So the Corps of Engineers had to work hand in hand with these other uh, institutions as well as uh, you know working with itself and trying to raise funds from Congress so as as you pointed out that there were uh, there's a long legacy and history of, of interactions here in terms that led to this particular disaster after this uh, this natural this natural hazard um, I think you're absolutely correct that there were there were some difficulties in, in producing and understanding exactly what the what the standard uh, hurricane would be for design, and there's been a lot of discussion about what that should be. Should that be Category Three? Should that be Category Four? Should that be Category Five? And that mm -hmm. it's a long, complex answer, and it really, and and I know this is this is probably not a comforting answer to give to someone who would like to have a short, quick, snappy answer. But one has to look at the probabilities of the event and the degree of safety that is important for those individuals uh, that would sustain that particular event. It does, it does turn out that, that statistically looking at this, that, that in fact, that the design that was provided in, in retrospect uh, has a lower probability than probably we would give to the design of dams at this time, and certainly the Dutch would give to the design of people who are protected by their polders. And John that, McQuaid that needs does, to be changed. John McQuaid, does that check out with your uh, study of the same situation? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I went to the Netherlands last fall for, for the Times-Picayune, and mm -hmm. uh, they have these massive uh, high-tech uh, flood control structures in place to repel uh, storm surges. The uh, protection level is uh, to repel a, a flood that comes along once every 10,000 years in the most uh, vulnerable area. Um, in New Orleans, the official standard was a flood that comes along once every 200 years, mm -hmm. and that was later proved to be you know, just a figment of somebody's imagination. The risk was actually much, much let, greater. Let me share a Chicago sort of thought with you. 
and tell me whether it applies to New Orleans. When things go wrong with the infrastructure here, we had, for example, a sudden flooding of underground uh, uh, tunnels in this town a few years ago, which really was a small but significant disaster. It shut down business in the loop for quite a while. Uh, when that happens, there are some editorialists and other observers who will say, if more of the public money that went in, whether through city or county or state, that was supposed to go into maintenance uh, and improvement of infrastructure, really got there rather than into private corrupt pockets, you wouldn't have these problems. Does political uh, corruption uh, in the general area of New Orleans, whether, uh, as I say, uh, judged by parish or by city administration or by state, does it deflect a good deal of the money that would have been put to better use uh, in a way that might have prevented the worst aspects of the disaster? Um, yeah, we looked at that very closely last fall, and the conclusion that we came to and that independent teams of engineers came to was that corruption was really a very marginal issue in the actual construction of, of the levees. Uh, you know, my, some monies may have been diverted. I mean, that, that always happens. Uh, but that the, the main problem was just in the low standards and in sloppy engineering. So it was more of a mm -hmm. pure competence, competency question in the Corps of Engineers. Now, I want to turn to Angela Rosas. She's a former colleague of yours on the Times-Picayune, who is now uh, gracing the staff of the Chicago Tribune. Uh, has done for the last three years or so. But you've been down there, Angela, quite mm -hmm. recently. What's the present situation as you see it? You know, the situation that I could tell um, spending about 10 days in the city, um, you know, I wanted to come back and say, uh, you know, my town, everybody's bounding back, everyone's full of good spirits, they're on their way, and, and it was really just the opposite. Yeah, I, I wanted to come back and be a cheerleader for the city. But you came back depressed. I came back depressed. Yeah, I, I, I caught a little bit of, of, of the Katrina brain, as people call it down there. There's this feeling of, of hopelessness, a feeling of we've, we've worked for a year, and here we are, this is all we have. We've fought for a year, we fought the government, we fought naysayers, we fought our neighbors who won't come back, we fought the looters who took our stuff, the looters who continue to take our stuff, the contractors who take our money and don't fix things, and yet we're still here and my neighbors are not, my house is still not ready, I'm still living in a, in a tiny trailer. There's, there's a definite sense of, of despair. Still the population the of the city at the moment is about half what it was the day before the hurricane. That's right, yeah, it's about half. Um, you know, with, with no understanding of, of how long it would take to bring those folks back who have left or if they will come back. A, a lot of the folks who have left and have not come back are renters, low-income, um, poverty folks, uh, and a lot also business who, who decided not to take their chances on coming back to the city. Even businesses that were home to New Orleans and started in New Orleans have left the city for you know the places that they were sent to after the hurricane. When we discussed this matter a year ago, Charles Dowding, you raised the question of whether, in fact, an attempt to rebuild and restore New Orleans to what it was should be made at all. Well, well I, I think that, that wisdom today would say that, yes, it should be rebuilt. The, the question is just exactly how it should be rebuilt. Uh, there are some some fairly obvious uh, suggestions, and of course, I think the Army Corps of Engineers is, is pursuing uh, along that line, and that would be to note that Jefferson Parish portions of it were were not uh, inundated as Orleans Parish was, and that was because of the it did not have any outfall canals as as Orleans Parish did. 
So I, I think it's going to be fairly. It's, there will be the easiest fix is going to be Orleans Parish, where the where the system is in fairly decent shape relative to the needs and the um, ability to uh, renovate it are going to be possible with a relatively small expenditure of funds. The the uh, of course the degree of 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 difficulty and the cost per per home saved and per home protected goes up from from Orleans Parish then. Um, I think that uh, the Army Corps of Engineers has looked at their system and has realized that the system cannot be built unless it is robust and resilient and it can uh, sustain uh, greater storms than that which already had seen and they have a number of suggestions and I, I, if our readers would go to the Army Corps of Engineers site or the American Society of Civil Engineers website they can see the reports that the Army Corps of Engineers has issued about its findings and the deficiencies in the past designs and what they are going to be doing for the what, future. What are the website addresses? We'll save them now and we'll put them up on uh, our website as well. Okay, I can I can give them to you if uh, here I've got them in a little piece of paper for you. Uh, ASCE is www.asce.org and the Army Corps of Engineers is www.mvn.usace.army.mil, M-I-L, slash H-P-S. And what you can go there and see how they are spending their contracts. If you go to the ASCE site, you can find the uh, report and um, references to the uh, Army's report as well. So there's an ASCE sum mm -hmm. report and an Army report as well. Um, John McWhorter, in your view, and we've heard a uh, uh, view in, along these lines already from Charles Dowding, um, but in your view, what can be done, what should be done, uh, what, in fact, has been done so far, can, um, should, and has? Uh, very big question. Um, well, in terms of the levy system, the Corps uh, has spent uh, a lot of money in excess of a billion dollars so far, uh, reconstructing levees that fell down and were washed out um, and strengthening the system, you know, putting concrete armoring on some areas to prevent erosion. Uh, it's now at a point where it was uh, pre-Katrina or somewhat stronger, and uh, they're going to strengthen it somewhat beyond that. Um, then... Uh, you know, the future, however, is unclear because uh, it, that's still a fairly low standard. Um, so they're doing a study to figure out whether, you know, as uh, uh, our friend was mentioning earlier, whether it should be Category 4 protection or something stronger. And that's going to cost billions of dollars. So the question is, does the political will, does the national will exist to get behind that program, you know, which involves putting... You know, Dutch-style uh, floodgates and other things uh, uh, to pre prevent water from getting close to New Orleans. Uh, do we have the, uh, you know, the will to spend that money and to get behind that program and to, you know, make sure that that uh, is uh, uh, started and then completed? What's the answer to your? What's your own answer to that question? Do you uh, have the will? Do they I, have the will? I, uh, I'm based on what we've seen in the past. I, I tend not to be very optimistic because. There are a lot of uh, there were a lot of problems before Katrina. Yeah. Obviously, now we have lots of other national priorities. We've spent lots of money in Iraq. The budget is not uh, in such hot shape. 
Um, so, you know, do we want to spend uh, 20 or $40 billion? Uh, you know, it'll be over a period of uh, a decade or more, uh, but still a lot of money to protect a single city. On the other hand, you know, this is an American city. It's a unique cultural uh, resource. Uh, it has a long history. It's something that we shouldn't just say, oh, well, you know, give it back to the sea. So, you know, I personally think that uh, we ought to pursue it, and it's worth pursuing, and, uh, um, you know, I certainly hope that we do. It is also, of course, the, the port for the whole Mississippi system, is it not? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and as uh, such, I think it's about the second or third largest port in the country. Uh, yes, I think that's true. Yeah. It's, um, it's a very it, important port because of all of the commodities that uh, are transported up and down the, yeah. the Mississippi River um, and the tremendous amount of industry that is located between New Orleans and Baton Rouge that also is uh, based upon the transport of commodities that are heavy in weight and easily transported by water. Uh, we need to pause now. We're overdue for some commercials. I understand, John, that you can stay with us till about uh, uh, 9.45 our time. Uh, yes. Um, and we will be right back to you and to Charles Dowding and to Angela Rosas after this. We are doing our rundown on the Katrina disaster and what is to be learned therefrom. My guests tonight are Charles Dowding, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Northwestern University, who does in his work focus on infrastructure preparedness and the prevention of engineering failures in uh, national disasters. Angela Rosas is a staff writer for the Chicago Tribune, recently returned from assignment in New Orleans, which is more or less her native turf. She used to be a staff writer at the New Orleans Times-Picayune. John McQuaid is one of the major reporters at the Times-Picayune, and he's with us on the phone. He is the co-author of the new book, Path of Destruction, The Devastation of New Orleans and the Coming Age of Superstorms. Little Brown are the publishers. Uh, let's pick up on that portion of your subtitle, The Coming Age of Superstorms. Uh, there was apprehension even a few days ago that the one that's just been passing through might hit New Orleans very heavily. Happily, it did not. But um, are we going to have even greater superstorms than Katrina represented? Uh, the, the consensus is, uh, unfortunately, yes. Um, uh, this season has been unusually quiet, but uh, scientists uh, agree that, that we're in a period of upswing of hurricane activity that we'll see more large storms uh, of the kind we saw several uh, of last year. Do we know why we're in that upswing, or is it just a natural cycle? <laughs> uh, that's the subject of some debate. Um, there is a, the global warming issue, isn't yeah, there? Yeah. A significant uh, and growing number of scientists believe that global warming, because it has raised sea surface temperatures, is... Uh, adding uh, to the, the strength of these hurricanes and that uh, alarmingly there may be no uh, upper limit to uh, how strong they can get uh, if the seas continue to heat up. Uh, another group of scientists uh, believes that global warming has uh, probably some effect, but it's much more marginal. Uh, however, that uh, we are in a natural cycle and we're in the up part of that cycle, and that is likely to last for uh, several more decades. So. Either way you slice it, we're looking at more uh, big hurricanes. Uh, John, we've got a minute before we pause for a very brief newscast. You heard what Angela said earlier about uh, the uh, the pall of 
depression that she thinks is hanging over the town. Uh, what's your own sense of uh, the level of morale? Um, well, uh, I was there. I, I'm in Washington, uh, D.C., but uh, I was there uh, last week, and uh, I, I think she's right. I talked to people at the Times-Picayune. Um, by the way, I myself have left the Times-Picayune. I should. I should. I didn't that. realize that. Where are you now? Uh, I am uh, freelancing at the moment. I see. And, uh, uh, have gone independent, um, but uh, you know, I stay in touch uh, touch with people there, and uh, you know, one of our staff members. Uh, uh, their uh, photographer uh, basically melted down a couple of weeks ago and tried to commit suicide by cop. And uh, um, fortunately, the cops recognized him and uh, treated the situation very gingerly and managed to take him into custody. And he uh, he's now doing much better and is quite uh, embarrassed, but is, uh, we hope, on the road to recovery. So, But there's just a lot of people on edge. Uh, it's very hard living there. Uh, it's living in a giant disaster zone. Three quarters of the city is just uh, still wrecked. So if you're and the services don't work, people are depressed. Everybody's lost something substantial. So living in that day to day is just very difficult. Do the Times Picayune people and similar uh, uh, long-term residents console themselves by frequent trips to the quarter? Uh, yeah, I mean the the. Uh, uh, restaurant culture, the uh, laissez le bon temps uh, yeah. uh attitude, that, that is a, a form of therapy for, for people. Uh, I remember I went there last fall, uh, uh, a couple of months after the storm uh, hit, and uh, I was amazed in the areas that were not uh, wrecked, uh, you know, where people were coming back. Uh, all the restaurants were just packed every night. You'd go out on a Tuesday and Know, the restaurants would be yeah. full up with people, so you know people go and they you know they socialize and you know there's a lot of heart there and they uh, you know the culture is uh, alive, but uh, you know there's a lot of uh, pain there too. Uh, we pause at the moment for just a minute and a half or so, and then directly back and to the newsroom and Veronica Carter. To all all three of you, please. This simple question: Remember the old song, "Put the blame on Mame." Uh, well, there's a lot of blame apparently to be uh, distributed, a lot of it to go around. But where does blame really uh, most fully reside? Blame, one, for the infrastructure failure, and blame, second, for what might be called the social failure uh, after the disaster occurred. And John McQuaid, I'll ask you to address that first. Uh, well, uh, on, the, on the second uh, question of the post-disaster uh, 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 response, I would split it in two. I would say that uh, the uh, mayor, Mayor Nagan, really failed uh, uh, in a profound way in terms of not evacuating people. Um, and uh, they were aware of the problem of about 100,000 people with no transportation um, who uh, you know, had to get out in, in the event of a, a major evacuation, and they were just unable to do anything about it, and they basically threw up their hands. Uh, then when uh, you know, they had an evacuation, all those people went to the Superdome. They were not prepared to host uh, 20,000 people in the Superdome for a week. So you, you saw what happened at the Superdome and in other locations uh, around the city where people gathered and uh, there wasn't enough food and security was uh, lax. Um, so the, the local government failed there. 
uh, I, in terms of rescuing those people, I would put the blame on the president. The president is uniquely uh, empowered to move resources around and to knock heads together, and he was just uh, off in a bubble for, for most of that week. Um, so he could have done something had everything been working right on the Monday of the storm, which, uh, uh, you know, that was when the levees broke. They didn't know about the little levees uh, busting until the, the next day. So, uh, so there was just a whole breakdown, and the president was, A, not aware of what was going on in New Orleans, and, B, kind, kind of unaware that things were breaking down at his level, too. Uh, same question to Angela Rosas. Well, I agree with John. Um, y you know, to, to talk about infrastructure, um, I think you'd have to go back to answer your first part. Um, and I, I, can't, I can't blame one person um, or one thing. Um, from what I've read of, of John's work, of engineers writing about this, uh, much more uh, expertise than I have, this is a failure that goes back 80 years. This is a failure that goes back from the original planning uh, not being implemented for not choosing the right plans um, to to modern day pork projects um, diverting money um, from the Corps of Engineers from the state of Louisiana to other projects around the state um, you know and and it it gets even larger than that. You were talking about superstorms earlier than that and and there's a lot of discussion about uh, Louisiana's coastal wetlands um, and their protection uh, from these superstorms. And, and the erosion um, from rechanneling the Mississippi River, from the oil drilling and all the work that's being done down there, um, stripping away Louisiana's natural barriers, um, creating basically first-line reefs being places like St. Bernard Parish. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think infrastructure, in terms of of, of all that, is is all the above. Um, you know, from the local government who <coughs> agreed to those port projects uh, being diverting that money to to the presidents of generations before. Uh, we've got to pause and catch up with the commercial schedule, and then I look forward to Charles Dowding's response to the same basic question, where do you put the blame? And then we'll go directly to the phones on 5917200. And on to the phones in a minute or so after we collect uh, from Charles Downing an answer to the same question. Where do you apportion the blame? Well, I'd like to continue the, the theme that's gone on here, sort of expanding this. I, I think we're all to blame in, in some respects here. There's a very interesting article in the uh, August 20th issue of Time magazine entitled Floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires, earthquakes, why we don't prepare. And it's basically a, a national in, endemic problem that, that uh, we're not familiar enough with the, uh, the uh, uh, improbable events but that still occur that Mother Nature can throw at us. Those curveballs, those, those fastballs that can be thrown that are unusual. We don't remember the fact there was a hurricane in New York City in in uh, the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And that means if the predictions are correct that the hurricanes are going to be more intense, that's going to happen again sometime. So those people need to be prepared. Um, and I, I think I would uh, uh, suggest that people need to read that article because it's, it's actually a very good article. It's easy to read and explains how some of the best uh, minds there are working with natural hazards have wrestled with this problem of preparedness you know, and understanding the difficulties. If you buy a cabin in the woods and there's historically been a lot of forest fires, you need to be prepared for the fact that one could happen to you there. In your you, you know, the, this really the suggests that we could borrow a basic stance or a basic attitude from uh, a defense or security theorists 
who are uh, military theorists who basically operate uh, with what they call worst case analysis. Uh, imagine the worst that might happen and prepare as if it's going to happen. I, th I think that's that's very true. You realize that the worst that can happen are things that happen only once every hundred years. Yeah. And it still could happen to you. And you need to realize, well, what might I and what should I do should that occur? Now, with that, uh, Angela Rosas, John McQuaid, Charles Downing, let's go to the phones. Here is the first caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Hi, good evening. Uh, I guess my question goes strictly to civil engineering. I caught a, a very good TV show about New Orleans, and because of the way we've channeled the Mississippi with levees and whatnot, we are causing the city to sink. The city is actually sinking over time, and we're destroying the wetlands that protect New Orleans from the Gulf of Mexico. And my question is, to protect, to prudently protect New Orleans for the next 50 years, how high are the levees going to have to be? How far, how big of an area are they going to have to cover to protect New Orleans from the Gulf of Mexico in case a storm comes? And how many billions of dollars is this going to cost? Has anybody ever put out a number that's $500 billion, a trillion? What is it really going to cost? Excellent question, sir. John McQuaid, what are they saying down there, the planners who are in charge? Uh, it's very uh, ballparky at the moment. I mean, one figure that's been floated for... Uh, category 5 protection, which we still don't know exactly what that means, uh, is $23 billion. Uh, that does not include the, coast of coast, the cost of coastal restoration, uh, which is in the range of $14 billion. So, you know, you could be talking $40 billion. Charles Downing, does that sound about right well, to you? Well, I think there's a whole other consideration to take into account, and those are that's what I call the geophysical uh, inevitabilities. Uh, mm -hmm. Number one, if the Army Corps of Engineers were not channeling the Mississippi River, it wouldn't be there right now. It would be down the Atchafalaya. And so um, I, I would suggest that, you know, we're, we're battling a, a long-term geologic issue here. The, the delta is sinking. Yes, it is, but it's not because of the necessarily because of the channeling of the Mississippi River. It's because the long-term geologic consolidation of those materials, the ocean level is rising. It's probably going to rise faster than maybe it would have without all that extra CO2 in the atmosphere. And so, you know, these things are going to create difficulties. I think in terms of whether or not we can build a, a, a levee high enough, I don't, my guess is it, that we have to build the levee so that they can be resilient, so that they can be overtopped, they will not erode, and that we have hardened pumps so that when they, the bathtubs surrounding the various metropolitan areas in New Orleans are overtopped and they, they fill up, those pumps are hardened, they can pump the water back out immediately. And it's no worse than a normal flood as opposed to this, this, this occurrence in New, in New Orleans. It's, it was worse than a flood because the water stayed there for, for weeks and weeks. And, and that's a... That, that's sort of my opinion. It'll have to be a resilient kind of design where, in fact, it can sustain a Category 5 and come back. Let's work in another quick question before we let John McQuaid go. Here is the next caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening. Um, I'd like to ask, um, first of all, I, my understanding is that the infrastructure of this country has been neglected for some time. The other thing is uh, I've never been to New Orleans, but I don't believe that uh, they should be uh, they should be building there. And my last statement is, um, 
also I understand that the uh, the contractors there are are uh, are neglecting or not um, well they're they're destroying the wetlands and I my understanding is the wetlands uh, do take care of uh, handling severe storms. Yeah, they tend to provide some buffering uh, protection. Uh, John McQuaid, your response, please. Um, well, on that issue, actually, against a really big storm like Katrina or Category 5 storm uh, or even Category 3 storm, wetlands don't make that much difference. They're mainly, in terms of flood protection, useful against smaller, more frequent events. Um, but if you have a giant storm coming in, there's just water everywhere, and it just sort of goes wherever uh, it wants to over all obstacles. So that's an important distinction. So to stop that, you need a man-made structure. You need a wall. Uh, that's the only thing that's going to... Which was neglected. Um, right. I mean, uh, in general, the, the whole system was, was uh, designed uh, uh, poorly and then built uh, not even up to its own uh, poor standards. Well, uh, governments, just like people, are supposed to learn from their mistakes. Do you, John, have any real confidence in the present government of the city and, for no. that matter, in the government of the state? Um, well, no, I mean... The whole, the central problem here is the way our system is set up, and flood control and other infrastructure is, uh, you know, run by Congress as, uh, you know, through earmarks and pork, and so it's very difficult to establish clear priorities. So, um, you know, the Bush administration uh, in the couple of years before Katrina was trying to cut the Corps of Engineers because they thought, oh, well, it's a pork uh, agency and here's where we can trim the budget. But they they made no distinction between what was critical infrastructure, the levees, and so they were nickel and diming levees, and, you know, wasteful projects. So the whole way our infrastructure, levees and other things, highway projects in this country is uh, built and maintained the whole system is just screwed up. I imagine what you've just said would apply not merely to the Bush administration, but to uh, the prior six or eight presidential administrations as well. Uh, I'm, af I'm afraid so. I, I, I would agree with that. There was a, a study down, done by an economist here in the Federal Reserve District of Chicago that showed that our the percentage of our gross domestic product that's spent on the infrastructure has declined substantially from the 1970s to now, I think, mm -hmm. something from 8% to 1%. And that just shows you that we've lost the national will to build. It's, it's very, very difficult to build infrastructure. It's hard to seek the funding from Congress. I know when I graduated from college, we were simultaneously building tens of nuclear power plants, subways in Washington, D.C., and San Francisco, wastewater treatment plants and water treatment plants all over the country, and finishing up the interstate highway system. We're doing all that at once. You know, think of how many big projects you've heard of lately around the country. There aren't many. We're, we're just simply not investing in our infrastructure like we used to. Said like the good engineer that you are. <laughs> uh, John McQuaid, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, thank you, and uh, our, our book's website is www.pathofdestructionbook.com. And we'll work in a few more calls. 
before the 10 o'clock newscast, and then on to another guest, in fact. 591-7200, we are available if you want to get in on this, move quickly, some lines are up for the taking. And you are on the air. Good evening. Hello. Um, I always kind of uh, had a, a concern. The uh, Back when the Mississippi was overflowing its banks up here into Illinois, Iowa, and Missouri, there was a concern that if they took the water out too quickly, that they would weaken the levees. I'm wondering whether they had a, a similar concern for New Orleans Basin or if they simply have different types of levees. Uh, Charles Doty. Well, it, it, it depends on where the water is on what side of, of the levees. And, you know, if um, y yes, you can have a, uh, a failure caused by rapid drawdown of, of the water. Uh, I, given the pumping capacity, though, and, this, and the severity of the flooding, I don't think that would have been a concern uh, in, in New Orleans. The pumps were designed to handle, I think, 12 inches of rainfall in the city over a period of 12 to 24 hours. And uh, th that capacity probably, even if that had been operating, uh, couldn't really have uh, drained the city rapidly enough to cause a rapid drawdown failure of the levees. Yes, sir, we thank you for the call. And let's work in one more quick one. Uh, here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, Milt. Uh, yes, I'm calling from the Northfield area here, and my my comment basically is that you know when all this broke with the with Hurricane Katrina last year and in, in the aftermath, we had an organization up here in the Northfield Glenview area, Northfield Township, to have a fundraiser, you know, to raise money to help the victims of Hurricane Katrina, and then in the aftermath of that and all the comments made by Mayor Ray Nagan about you know his chocolate city and the negative comments that it, that was recorded in the press afterwards really put a damper on our uh, fundraising efforts here. I could see a, a visible decline in the white community of donations going to the victims of Hurricane Katrina here. Mm -hmm. and, and Marv Weinberg, one of our sponsors up here, uh, part of our association, even indicated that at some of the follow-up meetings for the fundraisers. Sir, I understand what you're uh, heading towards, and we're very short on time. Let me get Angela Rosas to respond to that. Yeah, just a response. Thank you. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot made of, of Ray or May, um, Mayor Ray Nagan's comments uh, at the time, mm -hmm. um, and I think everything has to be taken into context. You know, there is a, a, a cultural history in the city of New Orleans of African Americans um, and and their con contributions to music and food and a way of life there, and and when he was speaking as he often does loudly, brashly, um, out of turn sometimes, um, you know I I think it's it's difficult to to take those comments his comments at that time and take them out of context and say well that means that he was not for a white city that you know to you have to take a look at when he ran for office he carried. Um, more than a majority of the white population vote in the city. He was supported by white folks in the city. So it, there's, a, there's an entire historical context um, to what his comments were. Our thanks to the caller, and we will be going further with an examination of the racial aspect of uh, this whole disaster uh, as we join John McWhorter right after an update on the evening's news. And now we are joined by... Uh, an old friend, John McWhorter. Good, uh, good evening, sir. John McWhorter, can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Thanks so much for joining us again, John. Uh, no problem. Um, 
Let me tell you what's been happening here. During the first hour, we've talked about essentially the physical engineering side of the Katrina disaster. Right. During the second hour, we want to go to the, the social disaster side, mm-hmm. if there was one. Yeah. Uh, there is, of course, as you well know, a standard argument that comes in the main from so-called liberal sources in the press. Uh, and the argument has two parts. One, um, a great sin was done, the isolation of some 20,000 or more people, mostly black, at the Superdome, uh, left there to essentially defend for themselves. Mm-hmm. And two, uh, that we've had very slow provision of effective federal aid over all of the uh, succeeding year. And that these prove, once again, that institutional racism against blacks, particularly, mm-hmm. still prevails in this country. Yeah. You have, uh, you've just done a column, I think it was published, was it yesterday or today? Um, there was one in the, the, the New York Sun, and that would have been last week? Ah, well, I just read it today, okay. and I found it of great relevance. In fact, we've just put it up on Milt's file, which is the blog, oh, good, good. The blog that goes with this radio program. Uh, it uh, dir- directly addresses the argument that I've just summarized, I think. Yeah, um, basically what it comes down to is that um, as much as I know that this is the sort of thing that gets me labeled a contrarian to say, I'm saying this out of the pure empirical sense that I have from looking at this situation. There is no ideological bias. This is simply what I personally see. Katrina has shown us not one thing about institutional racism. Some things might, but Katrina hasn't. Katrina has shown us the ineptness of certain institutions of ours, and we've seen that again and again. Katrina did leave poor black people in a horrible situation, but we don't remember that Hurricane Andrew did the exact same thing to a predominantly white population in Florida in 1992. We don't remember it as much because it isn't something that's very easily accessible via the Internet because it was right before the Internet became popular. But it was just as nasty an episode. People felt just as bad then. And as far as the slow government funding, that has been impardonable. I mean, unpardonable. I cannot believe after a year that it's at the point where people are basically putting nails in their mouths and building themselves because they haven't gotten the things that they were virtually promised a year ago. That is wrong. I can make no excuse for it, but it has nothing to do with racism, nor does it have anything to do with the more euphemistic way that we've been putting that this year, because I think that the racist explanation of Katrina is so clearly wrong. The nice way to put it is that it's about poverty. It isn't about that either. It's that we have a government which in many ways has been notoriously incompetent about many things. If we look at the way this government has dealt with, say, 9-11, both beforehand and the aftermath, It simply is logically incoherent to then say that when the government proves itself equally inept in in coping with Hurricane Katrina, that either racism comes into play or institutional racism, and not even can we bring in class. It's simply incompetence, and if that doesn't make for as good news, then I think we're just stuck with it. Now, John, as we develop this a little bit further, uh, I should point out to our audience, I've said you've been with us a number of times. That's because of a series of books you've done of great pertinence, the most recent being uh, Winning the Race, Behind the Crisis in Black America. It becomes necessary for me to say, uh, as ordinarily I don't even want to say, that you are yourself a black or an African-American. Let's face it, it matters. People should know that. It matters in the context. I'm not the white man bashing black. Exactly so. Uh, But there are lots of uh, other black leaders, whether intellectual or otherwise, 
uh, who argue, yes, this is racism. It proves that America hasn't changed its spots, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that some of the conventional civil rights leaders have been saying just that and are very angry at people like you who say otherwise. Well, the problem is that, I mean, to correct you very gently, Mill, for rhetorical purposes only, they don't argue it. They just say it. Yeah. But they don't actually present any kind of argument. And a lot of them, for reasons that I fully understand, and I actually discuss a lot of it in Winning the Race, they're not aware that when it comes to talking about racism that there's any need to make a systemic argument. And of course, 40 years ago, there was much less of a need. Racism was easier to identify then. It still exists now, but we're dealing with a more complex situation. So they'll say it, and it makes good music, but they don't argue it. They're not looking at facts and coming to conclusions. And what that means is that on this particular issue, you know, even if they're angry at somebody like me, they have to realize that their anger can be of no consequence to those of us who are standing on the sidelines watching the debate if they refuse to make systemic arguments. I've heard none from that side. Actually, one wonders as well, not only about, say, the Al Sharptons of the world, but one wonders about the ordinary uh, affected uh, citizens of New Orleans, uh, the black uh, citizens of New Orleans who've suffered so much. Yeah. Angela Rosas, what attitude prevails there as to whether this is uh, further evidence of Whitey's disdain or whether it can be explained otherwise? Well, I'll give you a, a mix, honestly. Um, there were a lot of folks that I spoke with um, on both sides of the races, you know, racial divide. Um, African Americans who, in the immediate aftermath when I was down there covering for the Tribune, um, who, who turned to me, and, and that was one of the questions that we asked, being the Chicago Tribune and up here, did race have something to do with the response here? And these folks who were in, this, in the, um, the, the places where they were sending people looked at me and said, my neighbor is white. I, it's, she was on her roof too. You know, this, this is the entire city, we're underwater, it, it happened to everybody. But when I went back a year later, this, this past um, time there there was definitely a, a change sense um the 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 idea um that they had not received help that they had not received the compassion um that they thought that they should be receiving that it was that the recovery was so slow for them that the checks were so slow a lot of african americans that i spoke with believed that their own race had something to do with it um that that they would have gotten help faster if they were white has Mayor Nagin actually sounded that same thing? You know, I I haven't. He's, he's played the race card a few times, but I haven't heard him address um, his complaints against the, against the president and the administration in terms of white and black. I've heard him, you know, sort of address the the facts as someone uh, pointed out earlier that he wants the city to remain a a place for African American culture and people, but I haven't heard him say. Um, you know, you would be down here if, if we weren't black. I, you know, and maybe I've missed it, but no, I had not. I've not heard the mayor he address. That. Yeah. He has. Yeah, he he has very studiously avoided taking that line, and I commend him for that definitely. Yeah. Well, John, uh, your further thoughts on the same? Uh, well, in general, I think that what Katrina really teaches all of us, I think, is it's not about racism. There were people there. And we saw them all on TV who were getting by in dead-end jobs, kind of crawling out of a hole in many ways. And a lot of that was because of what misguided social policies starting in the late 60s did, especially to poor black communities. And it's the lost chapter in black history. And just to put it very, very briefly, the kind of welfare that we are familiar with, where you had multi-generational 
multi multi generational welfare, no concern with whether or not the person got a job, no concern with finding the father. That existed for a 30-year window from 1966 to 1996. Before that, welfare was quite different. If anything, it was bigoted in its application. And since then, over the past 10 years, we've had welfare reform, which has been helping people get back to being able to help themselves. No magic bullet. But what Katrina showed was what those misguided policies in the late 60s did to poor black communities, which, given what was happening with the economy at that time and in our social landscape at that time, would have been much better places. They wouldn't be paradise. It wouldn't be the set of Leave it to Beaver. But it wouldn't be the set of New Jack City either. So that's what I saw. As soon as this happened, as soon as this was on TV, I thought, it's those darn welfare reforms of 1966, and I genuinely mean that. And I thought to myself, everybody else is going to think that it's because of how Carol O'Connor felt about the Jeffersons. Everybody else is going to think that this is about racism, when really it's about something larger. But we're just not taught that by our powers that be. But you are then invoking the hypothesis that the welfare system that prevailed for so long created a kind of a, uh, to use a pejorative term, pariah mentality. It did. And I mean, not only can you see this documented in primary and secondary sources, but, you know, being black myself, I have family members who went through that at that exact time. They'll tell me that my analysis of it is correct, the ones who went through it. Now, of course, all of us, and this includes me, don't have the whole world at their fingertips. We live our lives, and our lives are smaller than the whole world. But I think it does say something that the people who went through that system will readily tell you that it encouraged you to stay on it, that it sapped initiative, and that it basically paid you to have kids. And so that's not a line from Ronald Reagan. That's something mm -hmm. that many people there will tell you. I have cousins who, one cousin who was an administrator who left the system because she saw that that's what it was doing, and she didn't leave it because she read any of my books. And so I think that it was a real problem. And yet for many people, it's interesting, that welfare story is not on the radar screen of a Michael Eric Dyson or of an Al Sharpton or of any number of sober social scientists from various universities who wind up on shows like this talking about modern black history. For them, that didn't happen. And yet it was as crucial as, say, the asteroid that fell at the end of the Cretaceous period and rendered the dinosaurs extinct. You have to talk about it. With a quick reintroduction of our guests, and we'll go directly to the phones. Those guests are Charles Dowding, who is Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Northwestern University, Angela Rosas, who is a staff writer for the Chicago Tribune, recently returned from her second or third assignment in New Orleans, which is also more or less her native turf, and uh, joining us by phone from the East Coast, John McWhorter, who is um, uh, a former college professor for a number of years. It was Stanford, wasn't it? John? You've got to plug John in again. Or have we lost him? Can you hear me? Yeah, we do. Okay. What was your prior academic appointment? It was Berkeley. It was Berkeley, yeah. not Stanford. That's right. Um, and is now a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a specialist in issues of race, ethnicity, and culture and culture change. The author of a number of very important books, all of them treating the African-American experience and the African-American range of issues. The newest one of those, and we discussed it, in fact, it's on our audio archive, our discussion is, uh, was titled Winning the Race, Beyond the Crisis in Black America. And with that, uh, my friends, we'll go directly to the phones. 591-7200 is the number. You are the first caller. Good evening. Yes, uh, good evening. 
I wonder if your guests would comment on whether or not they feel race is affecting redevelopment decisions uh, adversely, you know, specifically uh, redeveloping uh, areas that should not be developed because of their, uh, because they're, they're so low-lying, and specifically like the Ninth Ward, I guess is what I'm referring to specifically in New Orleans, because it's, it's heavily black, and if the city or government or whatever the government has decided just to let it turn into parkland or just basically lay fallow, that it would be such a negative uh, effect racially that it would that it would never ha- be allowed to happen. This would be overreacting to prove that you're not racist. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, yeah. In other words, they're, they're, they're not going to do anything to really redesign or redistrict the, the city, taking into account the levels of uh, how low below sea level they are, because some of those areas had been predominantly black, and if they were to not allow housing there, they would be considered to be racist. John McWhorter, what do you think? Well, obviously, that's going to play a part. And we, all, we always have to understand, of course, that this is where they lived. And so, and it's not only just that it was about a colorful place like New Orleans. You could have been living in, you know, Elmira, New York, and it's where you live, and I can understand why they would want to go back. But certainly, the geographical lack of wisdom of that is going to be put aside, given the fact that these were people of color. And that's just the way it's going to have to go. I sincerely hope that they build this time in such a way that nothing like this will happen again, because obviously, strict logic would dictate that no one would want to live in that place again. But unfortunately, the world does not operate according to strict logic. Well, I guess the other question I would ask is, will the, will the city enforce zoning uh, laws that re- and building codes that would make the houses less vulnerable to uh, major damage, either from flooding or from uh, you know, wind damage, you know, the way that they have in uh, Florida? Milt, that should go to somebody who's on the ground in New Orleans, shouldn't it? So one of the other one of the other panelists. Well, let, let's certainly uh, put that question to Angela. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, already um, the city is not enforcing suggested. They were already bucking the trend of of uh, bucking the the recommendations um, by the Army Corps of Engineers by the federal government. Um, and and you know, there's no systematic plan in the city of New Orleans. And I think I think um, race does have a part to do with that because of these low lying areas, because of the Ninth Ward being predominantly African American. Um, Mayor Reagan has has hesitated in creating any sort of comprehensive plan. Uh, maybe that's due in part to his own lack of leadership, or maybe it's because he's afraid to give the bad news to a lot of folks who, um, you know, this is their home. Uh, this is their, the, these are the neighborhoods. So I, I think it could be a factor in, in delaying that process right now. Our thanks to the caller, and let's go quickly to another. Good evening. You are on the air. Good evening, sir. My name, well, I better not mention my name. I acted as a loan officer for the Small Business Administration's office in Dallas, Texas, and we processed loans from all the hurricane victims, both Rita, uh, Katrina, and Wilma. Uh, When we were going through our training with the Small Business Administration, it was expressed that the only things that we would look at, now this is just the Small Business Administration, we would look at their application. We would look at the uh, their credit history, their employment, and that would would be the only thing that we would judge for, uh, a person to get a loan. If we would decline them for lack of repayment ability and credit, or if they went bankrupt and they couldn't express themselves and how much you know why they went bankrupt, we would decline them and they would go to FEMA. There was never, ever, and this was mentioned almost on a daily basis, 
that no race would be brought up. So on our end, we were pretty well clear. Yes, and uh, therefore that leads you to what question, sir? Well, no, I'm, I'm just making a comment. Everybody's making its race, and actually it's economics. Uh, I see. I, 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 get the, I get the drift of your argument now, that that uh, clearly uh, rules out uh, decision-making on the basis of race. Th that is correct. That seems reasonable to me. John, what do you think? Yeah, well, um, there have been various studies. I mean, the larger issue seems to be that when you factor various things out, there does seem to be some sort of subtle bias against people with brown skin when it comes to getting loans for houses or cars or things like that. However, it's very small, and the studies are very controversial. However, in this case, I think we have to assume that this person is telling the truth. And this is a truth, which is the sort of thing that makes such a person not want to give their name. One sure. wouldn't want to talk about this aspect of things. And I imagine in the New Orleans press, this sort of thing would be very difficult. Well, we talk about it in the Chicago press in other ways. For example, there's long been a concern in this town about what is called redlining, which is uh, shorthand for uh, not giving mortgage loans to right. blacks. Right. And uh, it's been proved again and again by journalistic investigations, which you send blacks and whites in applying for a loan and for essentially... Yeah. yeah, and it does still exist. It would be silly to deny that right. racism has been completely obliterated right. in uh, the operation of the American society. It's one of those things, though, where although those studies cannot be denied, and they've been done all over the country, there are definitely holdouts of that kind. The comparison is always important. Many people seem to take those studies and then look at the concentration of black people in inner cities and say that that's the reason. Yeah. They're responsible sociologists who make it seem like you try to get out of the ghetto and you just get one door slammed in your face after another, where what the studies show is that you might get a door kind of half shut in your face, but that then you go to the next person and they're okay. And so it's gotten to the point where the amount of that that there is can no longer explain vast and persistent social dislocation, as regrettable as the practice is. Um, I want to give you a, um, a quick response from all three of you, I would hope, to um, this rather simple argument or simple question. I read from an email. After the Chicago fire, Chicago was rebuilt about 10 feet higher. Some properties in the older neighborhoods on the near west side still have their yards at the original height. If New Orleans is below sea level and it's a smaller city, why can't the same be done there? Charles Dowding. Well, it, it, it can. It, it just it would take a, a huge amount of soil that would have to come from somewhere, and the, the many people would like to use that soil to refurbish the wetlands. So there's going to be mm -hmm. a, a conflict between using that. One possibility would be to build upon the, uh, the waste or the torn down portions or the uh, disheveled portions of the homes that have been moved around. Uh, that was done in parts of Chicago, but then, of course, that uh, that decays with time, so that's difficult also. But that's a good that's a good solution. That should be looked uh -huh. at. Uh, John McWhorter, back to you. Not to solve the engineering problem, but any <laughs> any last thought you want to leave with us? Well, I think that we should remember that there are people who are suffering. You know, Katrina is obviously a hot media topic right now, and that was predictable. But to have lost your home and to be either rebuilding it or coming up with whole life for you and your kids in another place is something that I try always keep in mind 
when we're thinking about how that person would feel about us talking about whose fault it was and you know how much at fault Ray or Mayor Nagin was, et cetera. Really, it's very much a human tragedy. But I hope that what we can learn for it is more than, oh, dear, yes, there's racism, because we knew that before. We're going to see that again. It's not a difficult point, and about all the people at this point who are ever going to learn that lesson have learned it. I think we could learn some more complex things about history and sociology from it, so it just remains to be seen. And racism is not a... it's not an efficient explanation for it's what's no longer significant enough to occupy as much no. time as we get it often. Yeah. John, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Hope thank to see you, you again soon. Thank you for inviting me, Mel. This is fun. Good night for now. Good night. And we will pause for an update on the news as we go to Paula Cooper. And we'll be shortly back to the phones. I see that some lines are available again. If you've been trying to get through, try again on five nine one seven two double zero. But uh, directly back to Angela Rosas and Charles Doubting. And Charles Doubting, being the ace civil and environmental engineer that he is, has brought along his laptop and brought along a lot of very esoteric knowledge and maps and all sorts of things I don't fully understand. And you've been doing some lightning calculations in response to that last uh, email that we had about um, if Chicago could raise itself by 10 feet, why can't New Orleans do the same? Well, the, the uh, drift was that Chicago could have used the refuse from the from the Chicago fire to do that. Well, there's yeah. a good deal of the same from the uh, homes that need to be demolished and the interiors of the homes that aren't going to be demolished and what, where that material goes. It's been estimated um, that the that of the 26,000 structures uh, to be demolished in Orleans Parish alone, that would create some 7 million cubic yards of debris that would fill... Uh, one square mile, 10 feet deep. Now, if you multiply that by several, there will have to be several of these uh, one square mile debris piles that have to go somewhere. And those could be, in fact, if judiciously separated, separating out the toxic materials from the non-toxic materials and and the materials that uh, degenerate with time, that possibly could be used as fill material to raise uh, certain portions of the the city to a higher elevation and decrease the cost of raising uh, raising the homes. Another another comment that was made was that it was presumed that part of the problem in the lower ninth ward is because it is so far below sea level. Well, it turns out that the if you look at the lower ninth ward, it's it's hard up against the river, as is the French Quarter. And uh, in, in fact, uh, it is not the lowest part in, in town. In fact, one of the, high, one of the higher parts of well, the French the, Quarter, in fact, uh, wasn't affected by no, it wasn't, it wasn't affected at all, that, was it? It wasn't affected that much. And so the lower ninth ward, while it means lower, it means, I think, lower down the river as opposed to lower in elevation. Uh, so I think just the name alone sort of connotes mm-hmm. something that might be mistaken by some of the listeners who, who aren't from New Orleans. Um, so that it actually turns out that the Lakeview area and areas in Orleans East are actually the lowest elevation areas um, in not the Lakeview area, but I guess more near Gentilly. Is, and they can take the refuse from the other parts of the city. From the other parts of the city. Now, there's been some difficulty with the refuse in that it may not have been separated well enough, and there have been neighborhoods who have been uh, somewhat upset by the fact that the refuse was uh, placed near their neighborhood. So this idea would have would take a great deal of engineering. and. Uh, Isn't it really work. likely that the ultimate plan will be to uh, not redevelop and not rebuild some of the flooded sections, but rather uh, bring as much of the population back as possible, but build 
in other directions where you don't have these water problems. There's a lot of discussion about that. Um, and that could be the ultimate plan. Uh, it's definitely a plan that if you were to strictly look at the at the layout of the city, that may make the most sense. But to bring up what, what John said earlier, you know, there's still intact houses and yeah. neighborhoods and, and, and society and culture of folks who don't want to move well, People want to hold there. on to what they're anchored they, to, my even, home, if it, exactly. even if it needs repair. Exactly. Course. My home still exists. I'll do it myself. Yeah. I want me and my neighbor. And, and it, it should be pointed out also that Louisiana is one state among um, the country in which um, people neither move to nor move away. Uh, you you live next to your mama and your mama's mama and your aunt and everybody else down the street. It's it's a very sort of um, insular kind of state. So folks don't want to move even to another neighborhood. They prefer to just stay right here and rebuild. So there's there's definitely going to be a lot of push and pull as the plan for the redevelopment of the city comes. You're drawing from your own experience in the Cajun parishes of of, Absolutely. Uh, I still have a great many uh, family members still down there. And, um, you know, I have two sisters who live within a mile from my parents' home. So that's, it, it's, it's a part of the way of life. And it's, and it's something that it's part of the culture and it draws people there. You, you move into the state of Louisiana, you move into New Orleans, and it's a city like no other. I mean, that's one of the hardest things, I think, for people to get over, people who've moved yeah. away. Is, is and, the, and, the, and the great Cajun tune, Jolie Blonde. One of the lines is, kinfolk come by the dozens. That's right. That's right. Jolie yeah. Blanc. Jolie Blanc. May I ask a question? I, I was wondering, is, is what sort of inducements would, would you think would be particularly effective to allow people to move with dignity to higher elevations? Because, in a sense, we have to look forward to other natural hazards, cum disasters like this, and we need to develop policies that allow people to move out of harm's way so that when we expend large amounts of the federal treasury that we don't rebuild this problem. And so what sort of solutions do you might have? I think for the people of New Orleans, especially these these um, hardest hit neighborhoods, they want to be involved in the process. And up to this point, there hasn't been a lot of room, uh, although there are these um, boards and these committees, um, folks who are down on the, on the, the very level, the neighborhood level, they want to be in, if we could somehow bring in together neighborhood by neighborhood, block by block, have these people come together, if they could then reestablish some connections, if not everybody on their block, several people from their block into a new neighborhood, if we could somehow rebuild neighborhoods that were lost into some of the other neighborhoods that, that we could fit folks to, I think that would make it you know, a lot easier for, for people to take part in Do you think some of them could actually move physically uh, half a mile to some other place, or would the, that be too difficult? The other side of, of the Lower Ninth, I mean, you've got the Lower Ninth Ward, and right across the canal on the other side, it's, it's a better situation, so that, I mean, that could be possible. I think um, the question about to be raised by another caller may bear upon uh, this present discussion. Let's find out. Good evening, you're on the air. Yes, uh, I have the preservation magazine of the National Trust of Historic uh, preservation in the U.S., and in it is a story called uh, Tactical Retreat, and they go on about what they do in Great Britain. The British National Trust has 350 historic structures, 600,000 acres, and some of it they uh, let go when they see takes over. They call it managed retreat. They study, and if they think it's worth it or study work thinks it's worth it, they try to save it, but otherwise they let it go. 
I'd like to hear what they have to say about possibly losing part of New Orleans, if if it seems yeah. the thing. Well, to do. we've been playing with that theme. You can move portions of the city elsewhere. Yeah. Well, I I think if if we look forward in the next five ten years and all the the repairs will be made first to the most defensible portions of the polders or the ring dikes that surround the various low lower elevations of of the city and those will those will be um, constructed first the ones that for the least amount of money can protect the most people and most quickly and and i think that in a sense that process in itself will it will induce movement into those more highly protected areas uh, as a as a natural consequence of individual decision making mm -hmm. now provided that of course individuals are fully informed of the fact that you face a higher risk if you're low if you have a lower elevation and you're in an area which has a a much larger length ring dike or polder than another area that and it costs much more money to defend that particular piece of real estate than another one um, and I think that as a consequence of that type of construction process, uh, that may in, in, induce some sort of gradual migration and change. I'm, I'm not sure that it, it will be completely planned centrally the way it is in, New, in England. Our thanks to the caller. <clears throat> Charles, are there other American cities, <clears throat> nameable ones, that may ultimately face similar problems? Well, in terms of levees, the the Sacramento uh, Delta is one in California that that um, uh, has a number of levees that were constructed of relatively weak materials, and I know my colleagues at Berkeley are looking and studying that uh, um, uh, in terms of the difficulties that are are, pre are presented there in terms of in terms of the levees. I think in terms of hurricanes, uh, you know, the entire southeast coast of the United States is is basically sitting there waiting for God to throw a dart on their particular piece of real estate and to buy a uh, to build a, a magnificent vacation home on the outer banks of North Carolina is probably not a very good idea, is it? Well, I have a lot of people who 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 tell me that they that they have a home in a particular location, and the reason they built it there was there hasn't been a hurricane there in 25 years. Well, I'm not sure that that's enough enough of a historical record to to place your retirement uh, yeah. nut on that particular location. You know, one of the issues here has to do with uh, flood insurance and the fact that. Your homeowner's policy, for those of you all listening, does not cover flood insurance. You must purchase federal flood insurance if you want to insure your home against flooding. Now, it's relatively subsidized in terms of how much it costs, but you do need to buy that flood insurance because if, if, if your home is uh, uh, subjected to rising waters, uh, then your homeowner's policy will not cover that. You, you have to have the federal uh, flood insurance. We pause in just a moment for a last round of commercials and back to Angela Rosas of the Chicago Tribune and Charles Dowding of the Engineering Department at North Urza Engineering School. Uh, School of uh, Applied Science and Engineering. There we are, at Northwestern University. And uh, to your calls on 5917200, you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, you were talking about having people move out of areas that repeatedly got washed away. And in 1993, after the huge Mississippi floods that we had, 
there was a small community in Illinois that was of this type, and the homeowners were offered the option of moving their home or moving their whole town, actually, up uh, to a higher level, which wasn't too far from where they were, or uh, they would be offered the opportunity of having their home rebuilt in a low-lying area, but that would be the last time they would ever receive assistance in case of a flood. And many of them, I think there were only several homes that decided to stay in the low level, and most of the town moved up to the upper uh, reaches. What's the name of the town? You know, I can't remember. It started with VAL, I think, but I mm-hmm. can't remember the name of it. Um, but, it, uh, I, well, of course, we haven't had a Mississippi flood uh, since then, so we don't know what would happen. But it can be done with the agreement of everybody that's involved or for those who want to move. So um, I hope that something like that happens for the people in um, in New Orleans. I was down there for a convention. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I think the media has not shown is that in this so-called Lower Ninth Ward, many of the people have rebuilt and are rebuilding. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of signs of regeneration. So, you must have been listening to our conversation during the commercials because we were talking about that very that very subject, and that is uh, the federal um, disaster relief program being re reformulated to provide inducements to people to move out of harm's way or to higher elevations Uh as as being a a wiser policy in, in the long run. Now, there may be particular issues with uh, the, the, the New Orleans area that make this much more difficult because it's going to be hard to stay nearby and move up to the bluff, as it yeah. probably was yeah. in the Illinois situation. But I think to the extent possible, uh, the, the folks in New Orleans uh, hopefully will be able to uh, read a redeploy themselves in a position where they are more easily protected by the flood a hurricane protection system that will be is being built by the Corps of Engineers and will continue to be uh, uh, rebuilt and reconstructed and yeah. well, you uh, know, reinforced. In, in, yeah, in other countries where there are repeated floods, uh, for instance, in Africa along the Nile and so forth, everybody builds on stilts, uh, and even along the Amazon, also in in South America, they don't you know they they don't build on the ground because they know what's going to happen. And that's another possibility, too. They interviewed one homeowner in New Orleans, and they had bought their home, and they, someone had built in the basement under it. That, but prior to that, it had been up above the, you know, above the level. And the, these people said, now we know why they, never, they, they kept it up, and the people who built the basement in should not have done that. And they had decided they were not going to refinish the lower level of their house. They were just going to leave it you know, a plane because they were afraid that they might encounter another flood like the one that hit. Yeah, there were there were portions of the city, um, mid-city in particular, that were, um, uh, when, they, when that neighborhood was built, they were built uh, some seven, eight feet um, high off the ground with nobody living in the basement because near the bayou areas, uh, what used to be actual farmland and bayous, it regularly flooded. So the, 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 they built that part of the city up. But as time went on and, and the construction of the levees came and everything, people did, um, you know, sort of forget w- why the, their forefathers in the state of New Orleans had built up and they built on the ground. Um, and 
And so there's definitely going to have to be some considerations, some change. But one other point is to, in, in order, I believe, to bring people, to entice people, we have to have affordable housing in the city of New Orleans oh, yeah. for the great yeah. portions of the city um, that are living just at living wage, uh-huh. low income, middle income. And, and that is tougher in the higher portions of the city. And, and I believe personally that should be a focus of, of a lot of that rebuilding money to, oh, to make yeah. it more affordable. Ma'am, thank yeah. you for the call. Thank you. Interesting contribution. We have only a few minutes left. You know, we've done all the conversation about New Orleans, but in fact, uh, this disaster affected a much wider swath of the Gulf Coast. Isn't that right? From where to where does the, well, the, did you the, have major the actual The, the hurricane uh, impacted Mississippi. The surge was far higher in the uh, on the Mississippi state uh, uh, coast than it was in the New Orleans area. It was up uh, over 20 feet, 25, 27 feet in Biloxi so the, and towns like that uh, along Mississippi. The, the charming town of Gulfport has been almost completely devastated, yes, hasn't it? Because, because of the enormous storm surge, it went far higher than anyone had predicted uh, hurricanes yeah. would. People were inundated uh, way beyond what were the... Uh, where flood insurance was required, so that that's that's become a huge issue as to what to do in those cases where the people weren't required to have flood insurance, but in fact were flooded. And out do you have, do you have the same kinds of rebuilding problems in those other areas along the Mississippi coast, for example? Well, in, in a sense, because they they weren't in a bathtub below sea level, the, yeah. the water receded much more quickly. So. But, however, the, the the damage that occurred was very extensive and fairly far mm-hmm. inland. And, you know, from what I understand, the states are taking steps to uh, change their zoning ordinances to uh, induce building further away from the uh, oceanfront um, and to... Uh, uh, more strictly enforce the building codes that they already had to change those building codes and to uh, generate the enthusiasm for building back up on higher ground from from where they were before but the devastation in in along the gulf gulf coast was very extensive and and uh, very mm-hmm. significant and deserves attention as well there's an old ad in which mother nature is complaining about somebody marketing i guess margarine and her answer, her comment is, you can't fool around with Mother Nature. Uh, we, we have great, uh, uh, we have a kind of a hubris, haven't we, in assuming we can control nature and get it to obey our impulses and our demands. But nature acts up and acts back. It does. And it's uh, our ability to try and um, make promises to ourselves, to our people, to the city of New Orleans, to the Gulf Coast, to everybody, to, to give them that sense of safety when there was none, um, in, and then for that to be taken away from so many thousands of people, um, and then, you know, without any plans for the future of, of what to do, I mean, that's, that's one of the great tra- tragedies, I think, of this entire... Is it conceivable that the next time something equally challenging is thrown at us by... Uh, a, a non-cooperative uh, nature, mother or father or otherwise, is it conceivable that we will have learned something and will handle things better than we did in New Orleans? Well, hopefully, you know, we will have better evacuation plans and better plans to uh, rebound uh, yeah. when that uh, natural hazard turns into a disaster. And I think that's one thing we can do without spending a lot of money on infrastructure is to plan to... At least evacuation. To, to evacuate and to then rebuild and rebound. 
With that, we have used up all of the available time. Our guests tonight have been Charles Dowding, engineer, professor of that discipline at Northwestern University, Angela Rosas, staff writer for the Chicago Tribune, and by phone earlier we heard from John McQuaid, a special projects reporter for the New Orleans Times-Picayune until recently, and uh, from John McWhorter, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute.